We're so glad that you found this Peak City message today. Our prayer is that during our time together, you're able to discover Jesus and are encouraged to follow him fearlessly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, stay standing to your feet. I'm going to mix it up on you today. Yeah, I'm going to mix it up. Stay standing with me, all right? Stay standing. Because here's the deal. It's butt cold out there. Y'all came to church. Y'all the real ones, all right? If you're watching online, we still love you. But you ain't the real ones today, man. You came out in negative seven, negative nine degree temps to get out here. So here's the deal. I know if you're going, if you're going to come to church when it's this cold, you are not here to play church. All right, if, you, if you're here and if it's your first few times with us, uh, you would not come today to just uh, put on a front, put on a mask, and just play and pretend church. And so I want to do something with us today to just remind us that we don't play church here. All right, and we've not done this as a, as a church in probably a month and a half, two months, but with all the new people, all the people that are here for the second, third, and fourth time, I think it's, it's very important for us as a community to remember that we are building a church. We read these statements from time to time to remind us of what we're doing. So I want to read them to you so that you know we ain't here to play church. We are building a church where those who didn't grow up with faith meet Jesus for the first time. And those who did grow up with faith meet Jesus like it's their first time again. We are building a church where destructive lies about God and ourselves are dismantled. And we step into the truth that leads to freedom. We are building a church where the skeptic can belong before they believe, where the one who doubts sits next to the one who praises because God is at work in them both. We are building a church where we make life-changing decisions because the Holy Spirit of Jesus is here in this room right now and we will not let the word of God fall on deaf ears. We are building a church where we get raw about our struggles because pretending doesn't do anyone any good where we passionately worship and serve Jesus because he's too good to keep to ourselves, and where we make the gospel message clear because our world is desperately confused. We are building a church, and we will preserve and pass on this mission to the next generation because the church is God's plan A to rescue the world, and there is no plan B. Peak City, are you ready to keep building that kind of church? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, high five three people before you sit down and tell them we just getting started. Tell them we just getting started. Tell them we ain't even close to done. We here, we coming, and we just getting started. Oh man, it's so good to be with you guys today. Whew. I'm serious, man. I, I'm like blown away today because I just knew this was the day, man. If there's a day that you made an excuse to not come to church, it's this day but you didn't. You braved it. And so for real, if you're joining us online, we are thrilled that you're still with us. At least you did that. That's good. That's good. But um, man, it's going to be a good day today. Um, God moved in a powerful way in first service, and I, I anticipate he's going to do it again. Uh, if you're new with us, we are wrapping up this two-week series that we're doing to start the year off called I Still Do, where we're really doubling down on strengthening marriages. Okay, And, and I know when I say that, that our church is not full of married people. Okay, and so for, for many of you, if you're single, uh, this, is a, this is a series that uh, we want you to kind of tuck away in your heart as preparation for when God does that thing in your life and you end up in a marriage relationship. We know there's people who are divorced, people who are widows, people who are single and have no desire to ever get married again or even for the first time. 
And, and, and we're still glad that you're here with us because I, what, what we talked about last week and what we're teaching this week, it can still benefit your life. It can benefit every relationship that you have. And so we really do believe this is for everyone. Um, and so uh, we got more uh, uh, resources than just these sermons. We've got stuff online. If you go to this uh, website, uh, you can find some marriage resources. We've got marriage mentors. We've got um, couples in our church that if you just need someone to talk to, um, they are there for you. So you can sign up for that on the website. Um, but we just think it's really important for us to start the year off and double down on marriages. We know that when marriage is healthy, there ain't nothing better. And when a marriage is not healthy, there ain't nothing worse, right? Marriage is, is, is it's so important, but the truth is it's really hard. It's really, really hard. It's, 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 it's really hard to, to not get married, right? Getting married is like the easy part. I know some of y'all single people are like, yeah, shut up. You know? You're like, I, I wish I could get married. Like getting married, like anybody can get married, Anybody can take the marriage vows. You know, it's like the old Seinfeld episode with the, the car reservations. Anybody can take reservations. It's the holding of the reservation that, that really matters. Anybody can take a marriage vow. But it's the holding and the keeping of the marriage vows that's the really hard part. And so what I want to do today for our last little week in this teaching series. Next week we're going to get back to the Gospel of John. We've been working through the life and teachings of Jesus as told by John for almost two years now. And we're going to get back to that next Sunday. But for this, this last Sunday of the marriage series, um, I want to focus on longevity. Okay? I want to focus not just on how to get married, but how to stay married. Uh, because that's really what we're all after is longevity. We all want that marriage that's, that's been around and been committed and been through the ups and downs and is a blessing to your kids, a blessing to your grandkids. Like you want that storybook marriage of longevity, but it's rare in today's world. And so actually what I want to do to start things off today is I actually want to acknowledge uh, the long haul faithful marriages in the room today. And, and, and as a caveat to this, this whole day, if you are coming from, uh, from a place of pain, uh, from a place of a failed marriage or a divorce, I just want you to know, man, none of what we're saying right now is trying to point fingers at you of exclusion. Man, this is a place of love and hope and healing. And at the same time, we want to honor and, and, and really look up to long haul faithful marriages that have been able to stick it out and really stay together. So what I want to do right now is if you have been married for 10 years or more, I want you to stand up. If your spouse isn't with you, you can still stand up. It's all good. You can represent the marriage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Now, if you've been married for more than 15 years, stay standing. Okay, okay. We got a couple people biting the dust. That's all right. That's all right. If you've been married for more than 20 years, stay standing. That's where, that's where my wife and I would sit down. We're about to hit 17 years here in a couple weeks. If you've been, 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 if you've been married for more than 25 years, stay standing. 25, let's go. If you've been married for 30 or more years, stay standing. Come on, isn't that amazing? 35 years, 35, 35. Okay, okay. 40 years. If you've been married for 40 years, stay standing. We still got people up. We got people up in the back. We got people up on the sides. 45 years stay standing. 45 years. They still go. Oh, okay. It's down to two. We got a standoff. It's a standoff. They staring each other down. <laughs> if you've been married for 50 years or more, stay standing. Oh, we got one left. That's all right. That's all right. Pat and Sherwin, <laughs> Pat and Sherwin, how many years has it been? 
I could have gone another one. I could have gone 55 and you'd still be standing, man. 56. Oh, man, we honor you guys. We love you guys. Support you guys. Oh, look at him making out in church. We out here. <laughs> Whew. Lord have mercy. <laughs> making out in church. We do it. We doing it, man. We honor you guys. We honor. Was that George and Jan in the back that were standing? Whoever was in the back, man. We're so, we're, we are, I can, I can speak on behalf of the whole church, man. We just honor you and we respect you and we admire what you guys have built together. All y'all that have been married for so long. We just honor and I, I, I know this is like, isn't this the goal? Isn't that what we want? Like when you get married, it's like, Man, I know, I know so many people focus on the wedding day itself, make all the plans and preparations. But here's the deal. Your wedding could be beautiful and special, and it has no bearing on the quality of your marriage. It takes more than a good wedding day to stay married for 56 years. Right? It, it, it takes more than that. And that's what we're all after. It's not just getting married. It's staying married in that long haul, faithful, new morning mercies kind of marriage where you're just in it together with each other. That's what we're after. But the truth is it ain't easy. It takes work. Like if I know, I mean, I could, I probably should have just had Pat and Sherwin preach this sermon because they could have taught us so much. It takes work. Like these people that were standing around you, you should find them afterwards, and just ask them like, "How'd you do it?" Because it takes work. It takes commitment. It is, it is hard. It is difficult. And and some of y'all that are like me, been married for like, I mean, we're coming up on 17 years. Some of y'all have been married for less than 10 years. You know, like the person you married, you said I do to them, but then you learn some stuff about them. Right? You learn their tendencies. You learn their frustrating things. You learn the annoyances. And, and, and at some point in those first five to ten years, uh, I do turns into like, do I? <laughs> do I really love them like that? I don't know, man. It, it, it gets hard. And, and actually, before we even jump into what we're saying, I, I, I just want to relieve that, that tension and that pressure that you feel. Because I know that the reason that you're thinking that marriage is hard is because of who you married. Right? You, you think marriage is hard because of their issues and their tendencies and their problems. Or maybe, maybe some of us are on the opposite side of this. Right? There, 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 are, there are actually many of us in this room that struggle with uh, self-hatred and self-loathing. And, and we actually think marriage is hard not necessarily because of our spouse, but because of us. Because of all we brought into the marriage that this is really, really difficult. I, I, I just want to like relieve you of that pressure and kind of take away that finger pointing and blame thing. I want you to know that the reason that your marriage is hard is not actually because of your spouse only. The bigger factor involved that you need to wake up to is the fact that your marriage has an enemy. And I know some of y'all are like new to faith, you're exploring it, you're not entirely sure. There are so many people right now in our world, I love that America is going through this like spiritual reawakening where even people that don't believe in Jesus are like, oh yeah, 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 there's, there's like an unseen battle going on. I, there are things that are tempting me. There are forces at work against me. I'm telling you, you have an enemy. Your marriage has an enemy. The devil himself wants nothing more than to see you sign divorce papers. The devil himself wants nothing more than to destroy your marriage. I'm telling you, it is so true. Like, that's, it's one of the reasons I'm so glad y'all came out today, that it's negative a million degrees outside, because I think God sent you here for me to just to simply say to you, wake up! Wake up! You have an, you have an enemy. The devil himself is the primary reason that your marriage is so difficult. 
Uh, Peter writes it like this, one of, the, one of the most famous followers of Jesus. He wrote it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That at every turn, the devil is laying traps for you. At every turn, unseen evil forces are trying to get you into a place where you do something that you actually regret for the rest of your life. At every turn, the devil is looking for someone to devour. And I believe it with all of my heart because I've seen it in our, in our own experience. And I've seen it in the lives of people I've pastored for nearly 20 years. Is that the devil loves to attack marriages. When you get married, the target's on your back. In fact, he's been doing this since the beginning of time. It's so fascinating when you go back and read Genesis, the, the account of the first humans, Adam and Eve. It wasn't just that the devil tempted Eve, if you know the story, right? Like Eve wasn't supposed to eat the fruit. She ate the fruit, and that was the first sin. She led her husband to do the same. That was the second sin, and that sin separated them from God, right? That there was distance between them and God now. But, but catch this. In Genesis chapter 3, it's not just distance between Adam and God and Eve and God, that the devil was actually putting distance between Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. It's on the screen behind me. It says, this is God saying, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, the woman you stuck me with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. She's blaming then the Lord God said to the woman, or he, he, he's blaming, the, 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 the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, the devil you put in here, he's the one who did it. He deceived me. Check this. Not only does the sin separate them from God, it separates them from each other. They don't even have the same story of what happened anymore. They see their issues differently they go, oh, no, it's her fault. Oh, no, it's his fault. Oh, no, it's the devil's fault. Oh, God, it's your fault. And there's distance in the relationship because the devil, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you need to wake up. The enemy himself, the devil himself has your marriage in the crosshairs. Many of you who have been through failed relationships, failed marriages, and you're on the other side of it, you know this, that the devil attacked one or both of you and got you to do some things and say some things that caused your marriage to end. And the devil loves attacking marriages, every single one. He loves attacking because he knows, he knows, he knows. I'm going to say this, and I know it's going to sound harsh, but if you've been through failed relationships, you know you can agree to this. If he can destroy your marriage, he can destroy years of your life. You will spend years, maybe you're in the midst of it right now, healing and recuperating from the soul damage that a failed marriage can do in your life. The, the, the devil knows if he can destroy your marriage... He can actually uh, plant seeds of destruction in your kids' lives. He knows if he wants to wreak as much havoc as possible, just attack the marriage. Your marriage is hard because you have an enemy. Your marriage has an enemy. But we don't even see it. We don't even see it. It's like we get into this, like, autopilot mode. Like when you get married and you get going and you're just like, you know, you, got, you start having kids and you've got the career. And it's just like you have your routine and you just get on autopilot and you don't even notice stuff that's happening anymore. My wife um, said to me last, last week, it was such a sweet moment. She was trying to be real sweet about it. She said, hey, babe, um, could, you, could you pick up your shoes around the house? And I said, what are you talking about? My shoes are in my closet where they belong. And then she went from sweet to not sweet. And she looked at me and she said, you have six pairs of shoes in six different places in our home right now. 
And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> There's no way. And she didn't break eye contact with me. She just got up and started walking around the house and went one, two, three, four, five, six. And then she went back and sat down. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't even notice it, right? It's just like you get in autopilot. And, and I know that's like a common thing that like, you know, men are labeled as like, oh, the unaware men, the men who don't see. But it's, it goes both ways though, right? Because like a year ago, a year ago, I was trimming up my beard and I trimmed a little too close. And so what, I had a beard and it had to go down to stubble. And uh, I was like, this is, a, this is actually a great move. This is a blessing in disguise. I'm going to be like the handsome GQ stubble guy. Like, I'm going to treat my wife to a little like Brad Pitt stubble. See that strong jawline, you know? Like, I'm going to like really wow her with this. And so I trim up my beard. I'm coming downstairs. And I'm like, so? What do you think? And she goes, I ain't thinking nothing. What are you thinking? I said, no, what do you think? She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, do you not see this jawline that could crack a coconut? Do you not see? And she's like, oh, yeah, you trimmed your beard, huh? I'm like, I said, babe, I've had a big full beard. She's like, I'm sorry. I, I just don't want to pay attention to facial hair. And I'm like, well, great. Great. The very thing that I think makes me attractive, you don't even care about, and you've never noticed, and I've been working on for years. And it's, it's okay. Okay. Great. Just on autopilot, you know? It's like you, you just go, and you get in the groove of life, and you don't even notice What's happening? And you know, it's funny because this autopilot, this like tendency to not really be aware, to not really wake up to what's happening in your marriage, it starts at the very beginning of your marriage. It starts when you stand there at the altar and you're, you got the, the minister right here and you're holding hands and you say the marriage vows. We put the marriage vows up on the screen for me, Hannah. I mean, come on, it's the typical marriage vows, unless, unless you're like a real hip, like Pinterest Christian that write your own vows and all that is all good. If you did that, it's good for you. Most of us took these vows. Do you promise to love me and comfort me, honor me and keep me for better, for worse, for richer, or poor, in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to me for as long as we both shall live. Leave that up on the screen for me for a second. These, this, these are the vows we took. And we just, come on, we just say it. It's like ingrained into our minds because of movies and culture. Like everyone knows, yeah, for better, for worse, for richer, poorer, in sickness and health, forsaking all others, be faithful as long as you both shall live. It's just like defaults. We say it and we don't even know what we're saying. But what's fascinating is that when you do the digging on this, when you do some research on where these vows came from, these vows find their origin story. In the 1500s, a pastor named Thomas Cranmer developed what's known as the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer is a book of liturgy. It's a book that's meant to equip Christians to know what to say and what to do in all kinds of circumstances. If, if you've got a sick family member in the hospital, here's how you can pray. Here's some things you can say. If you're officiating a wedding or if you're doing a funeral, here's some things you can say. It's like common prayers that we can all be equipped with. And so he said when, when someone's getting married, this pastor said, who had spent time with people and who knew the Bible really well. He said when, when, when people get married, here's, here's the best thing I think they can say to each other. Here, here, here's the most um, God-honoring thing that I think a couple should say. They should say, I promise to love you, comfort you, honor you, and keep you for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful for as long as we both shall live. That was his, that was his best pastoral assessment of what a, what a, what a married couple need, needs. 
And here's the deal. I, I almost titled this sermon, Thomas Cranmer Ain't No Chump. That was almost the title of my sermon, but I was like, that's not very good, like, YouTube clickbait. I don't think anybody cares about Thomas Cranmer, but Thomas Cranmer ain't no chump. All right, we say these marriage vows, and then we just say them. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. These vows were created by a pastor who knew people. He had pastored people. He had pastored marriages. He had seen failed marriages, successful marriages. He was a pastor. He was a pastor who knew the Bible. He knew the word of God and this man who knew people and he knew God. He knew marriages and he knew the Bible. He said, I'm going to come up with some phrases that actually represent what a good God-honoring biblical marriage should be. And I'm going to form them into these vows. Thomas Cramer ain't no chump. What I want to show you for the rest of our time today is that the vows, and this this is the real title of the sermon. The vows are the battle plan. That if you want to safeguard your marriage from the attacks of the enemy himself, if you want to rebuild, restore, and redeem a marriage that's on the rocks, if you want to enter into marriage and and strongly enter into it with rock-solid commitment that builds a 56-year marriage later on like we celebrate, I want you to know, I want you to see it, that the vows are the battle plan. And so what I want to do just for the next 5, 10 minutes, I need you to hang with me like you've never hung with me before, all right? I need you to come with me on this. I, I want to uh, teach, not preach, for like five, ten minutes, okay? I want to turn uh, Peak City uh, Church right now into like a marriage workshop for five, ten minutes, okay? And when I mean teach, not preach, I mean I need you to take notes. Because the point of today is, if you're a married couple in the room, we had a print off on every other seat that had the marriage vows written on it. If you've got it, grab it real quick, okay? The challenge that's going to come from today is I want to I teach you what Thomas Cranmer meant when he came up with these marriage vows. I want to teach you their, their biblical basis, why they represent a, a God-honoring, God-focused marriage. And then I want you to take those vows that we printed off for you, and I want you to grab a date night at some point in the next couple of weeks with your spouse, and I want you to sit across the table from each other and have a conversation about this. I want you to work through the marriage vows together, and I want you to talk about how it's going. And then I want you to end that date By looking at each other and saying, do you promise to love me, to comfort me, to honor me, to keep me, for better, for worse, for richer, or poor, in sickness and health, forsaking all others, be faithful to me as long as we both shall live. And I want you to be able to look at your spouse and say, I still do. But I need you to take notes. I'm going to give you too much information. You can't consume it, digest it all in one setting. Okay, so everybody take one big deep breath with me together. Can we go to school for a little bit? Yeah? You ready? You ready to build some better marriages? You ready to get ready for marriage? Yeah? All right. I'm I'm trying to save you thousands in counseling. I'm trying to set you up for something. Some of y'all that have been through a failed marriage are going to go, mm-hmm, he's right. If if I had done that, if if, if we had done that, it would have been different. All right? I want you to see that the vows are the battle plan. The vows are the battle plan. Because the vows say very, very specifically, I can say the crammer wasn't no chump. He knew what he was saying. It says, do you promise to love? To love. Go with me. Go with me. We throw this word around like it's just an emotion. Like it's just a normal thing. Of course you would love the person that you marry. But hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Don't follow the definition. The hippy-dippy, dumb, low-level cultural definition of love. Follow your heart however you feel. 
No, 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 no. To love, to love, to love, as the Bible teaches us, is to sacrifice everything for their benefits. That when you, sat, when you stood across from your spouse and you said, I promise to love you, you were promising to sacrifice everything for them. 1 John chapter 3 says it like this. This is how we know what love is. This is the definition. The culture can say whatever it wants. The culture can use low-level definitions all they want. We're going to reclaim the word. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is how you know what love is. You lay it all down for the sake of your spouse. When you said, I do, when you said, I promise to love you, you were promising to put their wants, their needs, their desires above your own. To die to your own wants, needs, and desires and prop them up to sacrifice everything for them. And here's the deal. The enemy is always attacking your love. The enemy is always attacking your commitment to love your spouse. And you can know for a fact, you can see it, you can see it, you can see it. You know that the enemy is attacking your commitment to love. A, a, a lack of love is evidenced by an increase in selfishness. I want you to write that down and think on that this week. And, and a lack of love, an attack on your love is evidenced by an increase in selfishness. When you care more about your needs being met than theirs, the devil's attacking your love. When you care about more, more about your comforts and your wants and needs more than theirs, the devil's attacking your love. That's what's happening. Do, do you promise to love? Do you promise to comfort? And again, just don't buy into the culture's low-level, shallow definition. No, 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 no. To comfort. Come on, to comfort. It's not just, I'll put a blanket on you when you're cold. I'll be your shoulder you can cry on, but not really. No, to love means to be emotionally aware. In the high, or to comfort means to be emotionally aware in the highs and the lows. To be aware when your spouse is elated and when they are devastated. To be aware, Paul would write it in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When they up, you up. When they down, you down. I'm so thankful for my wife who models this for me so well. It's like I'll come home from work sometimes, and I'll just be like bouncing. I'm like so excited, and God's done something amazing. And she'll just be like, whoa, you are pumped. you got to tell me why. What happened? And she's like ready to celebrate with me. And then sometimes I'll come home, and I'll have like that furrowed brow, ready to kill somebody look. And she's like, hey, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. She's like, no, you ain't. What happened? She, she's aware. She's emotionally aware of the highs and the lows, and she meets me. And you know the devil's attacking this, I'm telling you. You can know the devil is attacking your commitment to comfort when you quickly dismiss or quickly get frustrated with your spouse. When you see them on a high note and you're just like, oh my gosh, chill out, you are wearing me out. Or when you see them down the dumps and you're like, hey, stop being such a Debbie Downer, jeez. When you quickly get frustrated with or quickly dismiss, the emotions of your spouse, what's happening is that the, the devil's attacking your commitment to comfort them. The devil's attacking your commitment to meet them where they are. Do you promise to honor? Oh, man, we could, one day I'm going to preach a whole month on honor because it's such an important aspect of honor. I think that we, we lose this word because we think an honor, like we've reduced it to like a military salute, and that's about it. And that's part of it. Sure, we want to honor the people who've sacrificed for our country. Absolutely. Honor is so much more than that, though. Oh, it's so much more. To honor means to verbally and non-verbally respect and encourage. Can I ask you, are you verbally 
and non-verbally respecting and encouraging the person that you said I do to? Do they know how thankful you are? Do they know how much you love them? Do they know how grateful you are? Do they know how much you admire and respect the career that they built? Do they know how much you admire and respect the way that they keep your family running and without them you would be totally screwed? Do they know? You got verbally and non-verbally. Paul says in Romans 12 again, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's the only time scripture tells us to compete with each other. That you and your spouse should be like, oh, you're the best. Be like, oh, no, you are the best. Oh, no, trust me, like, you got this. You got it going on. Like, oh, no, like, I, I learned everything from you. Outdo one another in showing honor. And again, you can know, you can know, you can know. You can know the devil's attacking your commitment to honor. You've got to write this down because I'm telling you this will radically change a marriage. I have counseled more people through what I'm about to tell you. More issues come from this right here. The devil attacks your commitment to honor. It usually shows up as sarcastic, condescending, or entitled communication and behavior. Sarcastic. I know it's like, come on, lighten up, Petey. We're just like cutting at each other, just having fun. You know what's funny is like one of my favorite shows, The Office. Any Office fans in here? I know it's like getting, it's crazy that show's like really old now. I think The Office is actually what normalized sarcastic communication in our culture. It was really funny to see Michael and Dwight do it. But let me tell you, it'll wreck a husband and wife. Sarcastic, condescending, entitled communication behavior. When you're taking them for granted, oh my gosh, I'm telling you, what's happening the devil is attacking. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's attacking your commitment to honor them. And then this, this last part before we transition into a different part of the vows, he says, do you promise to keep? Whoo, y'all ain't ready for this one. You ever heard the phrase, I'm not my brother's keeper? It means I ain't responsible for my brother. Well, unfortunately, friend, when you stood at the altar and said, I do, you promised to keep them. To keep is a word we don't use in our culture that often. But we know when we say, I'm not my brother's keeper, it means I am not responsible for my brother. My friend, you committed at the altar to be responsible for your spouse. Oh, y'all know the gravitas that comes with the word keep. You promised to be responsible for the outcome, the direction, the quality of their life. That when you said, I promise to keep you, you said, God... You can actually go and worry about some other people because I'm going to focus on them. I got them. I got them. And Paul actually says as much. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without a stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In that same way. In the same way that Jesus says, I'm going to work on making the church as holy and awesome as I can so that one day we go, wow, look at what God did. Look at what God did through all of us together. Jesus takes responsibility for us. He says in the same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own bodies. You ought to take responsibility for them. You ought to understand that he who loves his wife actually loves himself. You, you promise him to take responsibility. That, that one day, and, you, and I, I promise you I'm not exaggerating. This is scriptural. I'm just showing you. One day, you will give an account to God for your spouse, not just yourself. It's so important to understand this. For some of you, some of you that are young and you're thinking about getting married, I, I, I want this to kind of scare you. 
Like you are, you are saying, you are signing up to say, to stand before God and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they're a little messed up, and we tried, but we worked on some things. But I just quite. You're signing up to say, yeah, I vouch for them. I'm with them. I'm taking responsibility for them. I love how Tim Keller puts this in the meaning of marriage. This quote is amazing. He says, with with this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it really means to fall in love. Okay, here's what it really means to fall in love is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating. And to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, whoo, I'm going to look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. To take responsibility, do you promise to keep them to be responsible for your spouse and he says these vows we make them for better or worse for better or worse regardless of the circumstances no matter the circumstances no no matter how the career turns out no matter how your dreams happen if your dreams get crushed or your dreams come true no matter if you're able to have kids or not no matter if your kids turn out great and you still got relationship with them or they turn out like complete hellions it don't matter what the circumstances you're in Paul says I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances in Philippians 4 it don't matter what happens to me it don't matter what circumstance comes my way I'm in for better for worse for richer or poor no matter the standard of living No matter if you don't get the dream car, the dream house, if you don't retire at the standard you were looking to get into, you you didn't marry for a standard of living. You married to build a relationship that endures good and bad economies, that endures job success and job loss. You're in this no matter what. Paul says in the very next verse, in verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I am in for better, for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. No matter the diagnosis. No matter the diagnosis. No matter when their body fa- when their body fails them. When your body fails you. When they don't look the same way that they did at the altar. Because, oh, guess what? You don't either. When... Your body fails you. Your body is going to fail you. And you are committing to love this person through the failure of their physical body. Do you understand that kind of commitment? Psalm 73 says, my heart, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forsaking all others. No one else takes priority. Your kids aren't more important. Your parents aren't more important. Your coworkers aren't more important. Your boss ain't more important. No one else takes priority over your spouse. The only one who could ever take precedence would be God himself, and God tells you to leave and cleave. Genesis 3, it says, this is why a man, uh, Genesis 2, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There ain't no other relationship. You can love other people, but when push comes to shove, they are your priority. You forsake all others. Be faithful as long as you both shall live, it wraps up. Be faithful, as long, loyal till the end. Faithful, faithful, faithful. That your physical intimacy, your emotional intimacy, your relational connection, your spiritual connection, it is reserved exclusively for the one you stood across the altar from and said, I do. Hebrews 13 says it like this. The marriage 
bed, that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Faithful. Faithful. For as long as you both shall live. Do you promise to love and to comfort, to honor and to keep, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, to be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. Everybody take one big deep breath again. You did it! Workshop's over. Okay, you can close your notes up for a second. This, I mean, come on, put, put, yeah, the circle's up there. Thank you. You you know where I'm going, Hannah. You read my mind. I want you to think about this for a second. In light of what we just talked about, don't go on autopilot. No autopilot. We're We're not committing to vows that we don't know anything about. We now know the seriousness of the commitment that we made. And whether you knew at the beginning, it's all good. Now you know. This is the relationship you're in. Think about it, though. If you're keeping these vows... How could it go wrong? Peak City, if, if, if the marriages in this house keep these vows, our divorce rate will be in the single digits. There ain't no way that, I mean, look, this is a fence of protection around your marriage. The vows are the battle plan. The devil, your great enemy, he prowls around your marriage like a roaring lion, and he's looking for one of these to devour. He's, look, he's, 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 he's looking for one, for, for, for one of these to weaken. He's looking for a way to get in. But if you keep these, if you double down on these, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you will have a 56, 52-year marriage, and it'll keep going and going and going because you doubled down on the vows, because the vows are the battle plan. The vows are your, your path to protect, redeem, restore, and rescue the marriage that you're in right now. But here's the deal, here's the deal, here's the deal, here's the deal. I know what you're thinking. Must step in your brain for a second. Be honest. I'm not going to ask you to say anything out loud right now. I'm trying to get as close to the microphone as I can so I can get inside of your soul. Be honest right now. Every person in this room, if you're being truthful and honest, and now you know what these vows mean, There is at least one of these vows that you don't want me to ask you about. There is at least one of these vows that makes you nervous because you know, you know, you know, you are not holding up to what you committed to. You don't want me to ask about it. My kids... um, just leave that up there for me, Hannah. Thank you. My kids, um, I'm trying to work on them. I'm trying to help them. Uh, Brittany and I are trying to help them take responsibility in life. I guess one of my biggest fears is our kids leaving the house and they're just like, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm not taking responsibility. I'm dependent on mom and dad. I'm trying to raise up some kids and get them out. <laughs> well, so we started giving them chores last year, right? You got chores to do. You got chores. You got like, you know, because like, we, come on, we raise these kids, we have paid for these kids, we wipe these kids' butts for years. At some point, I want them to do the dishes for me. Is that too much to ask? 
at some point, I don't want to pick up the poop in my yard. At some point, I want to, like, have them mow the yard for me. Like, I know this ain't a business. I know they're not employees, but they kind of are. <laughs> and so, it's like I'm, I'm trying to, like, have some years of freedom where I sit back and let them do all of, all of the work. They, they got to earn their keep. And so, we give them these chores. They've all got chores. We got 12-year-old, 9-year-old, 7-year-old, and they all got their chore list. But what we found last year is that in giving them these chores, we found that Brittany and I, by the end of the year, we were spending more time following up on their chores, checking on their chores, telling them they're not doing their chores right, than we were ever spending doing the chores ourselves. <laughs> and I'm like, Brittany, if this is a business, I know it's not a business. And if they're employees, I know they're not employees. But we're not leading this thing right, okay? I need to, <laughs> I need to like, practice some leadership principles so that we can get these employees in line. I mean, kids. And so I'm like, we got to get them. The problem is we got to get them to hold each other accountable. You know, like a good ball coach, a good football coach, it's not just the coach that holds accountable. Like the, the players hold each other accountable. We got we to gotta raise them up like a team. I'm like putting all my leadership management practices into play here. And so I'm like, we, 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 we got to do something different. So we brought them together a couple weeks ago. And we said, here's the deal. New rule in the house. Your mom and I are not going to check on the chores every night. We're not going to follow up. But if we see a chore that is not completed the right way, you will all three be punished. And you'd have thought I started World War III in the house. They were like, what? Like, that's not fair. And I said, son, life ain't fair and the world is mean. Get used to it. Okay? This is, this is part of it. And uh, first night, I'm telling you, first night, we woke up the next morning and saw some dishes in the sink. A bunch of dishes weren't done. They're supposed to get done. We said, fine. Hey, guys, here's the deal. Dishes weren't done. Somebody didn't do their chores. And so everyone loses one hour of screen time this weekend. And they were like, no, I mean, just kicking and flailing, and it was awful. But let me tell you, that night, the chores got knocked out. It works. Our employees did well, our kids. <laughs> and so it's going great. It's going great now. But there's one area that they continue to forget about, and it's the basement. And the basement's like, they got a little play area in the basement. And so, uh, you know, Brittany and I are sitting on the couch at night. They're going to go to bed. And I'll be like, hey, is the basement clean? And they'll go, this happened multiple times. They'll go, oh, yeah, 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 basement's clean. I'm like, awesome. So if I got up right now and walked downstairs, would I see a clean basement? They're like, oh, yeah, you'll definitely see a clean basement. It's done, Dad. And, the, and, and I know what they're doing. They're testing me. They're testing how lazy I am. <laughs> because a couple times I've been like, well, fine. I'm just going to get up and go check. They go, well, now hold up a second. Dad, you stay up here. Guys, let's go back down and just check it one more time, shall we? And they're down there for 15 minutes cleaning up the basement, right? Because they're like, just don't, don't go look, Dad. Don't go look. They didn't want me to ask about it because they knew. I know right now, every single, you think you're the only one who's broken a marriage vow. Ooh, when I say it like that, it sounds so bad, doesn't it? When I say you've broken a marriage vow, oh, like that's the stuff that ends marriages. But come on, be honest. Be real. Don't sugarcoat it, man. We didn't come to church in negative seven degree weather to pretend. Be real. Every single one of us have got at least one, if not multiple of these vows that we have maybe not held our end of the bargain on completely. It is getting weak. There is a percentage of it that is not actually getting hit. We're not 100% on all these. Nobody in this room is perfect. And I think that's the thing the devil uses. When you stand at the altar and your spouse is across from you, everything looks perfect. The wedding's perfect. Her dress is perfect. Your tux is perfect. It's all perfect. 
And so you sit there and you make these vows, and then it says, if you are committing to perfection, you get one day into your marriage and you realize you've already screwed something up. Be honest. Be real. You've cut down your spouse when you shouldn't have. You've gossiped about them. You threw them under the bus with your coworkers. When they were all complaining about their spouse, you said, oh, I know, the old ball and chain. You, you've, you, you've looked at things. You have developed um, emotional attachments to people that you know were the, were the beginnings of a, 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 a full-blown affair. And you backed off of it, praise God. But you still did it. There are things in here, come on, there are some of us in here that hold such resentment towards our spouse because our standard of living is not what we thought it would be. That is a breaking of your marriage vow. You, you committed for richer or poorer. I'm telling you, the devil uses, I, I, I wrote this down, I want to put it on the screen for you too, that the enemy uses the pressure of perfection to distract you from the pursuit of progress. The enemy uses the pressure of perfection. You think you've got to put up this facade like you're, the, like you're just like you were on your wedding day. Pure and spotless and it's all good. The pressure of perfection and you just got to pretend, right, until you clean it up and fix it. You got to pretend. No, 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 no. That actually gets in the way of what you should be after, which is the pursuit of progress. You, the, the, the enemy uses the, the pressure of perfection. Can I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to your heart in a way that actually solves this problem right now. We talk about how much God loves you. He loves you. He forgives you. You'll be in heaven one day. It's all so ethereal. It's all so out there. I want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that actually fixes some problems in your marriage right now. You don't have to be perfect. You're not. Jesus was perfect on your behalf. Jesus stretched his arms out on the cross to die for you so that every sin would be forgiven, so that every mistake could be redeemed. He, he is not expecting perfection out of you. No, 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 no. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to live under that. We say we want to be raw as a church, right? Raw, and, we, and we, the, 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 the uh, way we define raw is that Jesus has freed us from the pressure to perform. When the perfect sinless son of God hung on a cross for you, it freed you from your pressure to perform and be perfect. He did it for you. And now you have complete access to forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so because of that freedom we now have, we walk in vulnerability and transparency. You can sit across the table from your spouse when you go on this date night and you can say, hey, I know I've not been perfect. And they'll go, trust me, I know too. And you can say, yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm in progress. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in process. I'm, I'm making progress, right? Because the gospel of Jesus frees you from this pressure. It frees you to be real. It frees you to be authentic. The number one thing your marriage needs is for you to be honest with each other. How can you ever defend each other? How can you ever support each other? How can you ever forgive each other if they don't even know what they should be forgiving? You've got to get honest with them, and you've got the freedom to do so. In Jesus, I'm telling you, when you have the gospel of Jesus in your life, you can declare these things over your life. You can say, I will not expect perfection. I want you to say that after, after I say it, okay? There's a, there's a call and response to it. I will not expect perfection. I will expect progress. Oh, that's the gospel at work in your life right now. I will not expect perfection. Say it again. 
You are preaching the gospel to your heart right now. Married, single, divorced, widowed, you are preaching the gospel. You, you do not have to be perfect. I will not expect perfection. I will expect progress, though. Because of Jesus, I can take steps forward. Because of Jesus, I can become a better husband. Because of Jesus, I can become a better wife. I can let my past die in the past. I can leave it in the past. And guess what? Your spouse can be given the love that they need to forgive your past. That's the reason so many of you don't get honest. It's because you don't think your spouse could forgive you. You don't understand how much Jesus could do in their heart if you gave them the chance to forgive you. I will not expect perfection. I will expect progress. When you think about yourself, oh, don't put the pressure on yourself. You need to preach it to yourself. I will not expect perfection of myself. I know there are going to be some bad days. I know I'm going to get selfish at times. I won't expect perfection, but I will expect progress. You can, you can actually preach it to your spouse too. You can look at your, you should do that on your date night. You should look at your spouse and say, I'm releasing you of the expectation to be perfect. You can't be. I, 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 I don't even expect that of you anymore. But you can look at your spouse and say, but I do expect progress. I expect you to be pursuing the Lord like I'm pursuing the Lord. I expect us together to lock arms and to do this thing and to build a marriage that is unstoppable. I don't expect because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Oh, friend, you can be forgiven. There are people in this room right now who have gone through such relational failure, and it's because of you. Can I tell you right now, Jesus died for you to be forgiven. He wants to heal your broken heart. He wants to heal your broken marriage. He wants to heal the fact that you feel lonely every night. He died for you. Don't expect perfection, but expect through the power of the Holy Spirit to make progress. And I want you to just know that in this room right now, that you're not alone. Every single marriage in this room has got issues. Every single person in this room has, has broken one of their vows and they're working on it. They're work. You are not alone. That's why I love how Peter ends the, the verse where he says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, look at what he says in verse 9. He says, so resist him. He prowls around your marriage like a roaring lion. He prowls around your life like a roaring So resist him. Stand firm in the faith. And here's the deal. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. You know that every person in this room is dealing with the same things you're dealing with. You're not alone. You got a family. You got a family inside these walls right now. You got a family of people that love you and support you, that will stand with you through whatever situation you're going through. We've got you. We've got you. There's nothing you could ever confess. There's nothing you could ever work on. There's nothing you could ever say that would scare us away from you. We got you. You got a family of fellow strugglers here. And that's actually how I want to end our time today. I want us to have a moment where we can pray for you where even my wife and I are gonna receive prayer in this moment. And uh, I don't wanna pressure anyone to do this if you don't want to, it's okay. Um, if your spouse is not here, you can still do this in, and just in, in, in representation of, of the marriage that you have. Uh, and even if you're here and you've just gone through a failed marriage and, and you're just reeling, um, you, can, you can participate in this moment as well and receive prayer. But I actually want you, um, if you're married and you're willing to receive prayer, we're not gonna parade in front, <laughs> We're not going to make it, you know, come in front of anybody. We're not going to hand you a microphone and make you share anything. This is just um, the church being the church and just supporting and loving each other. And so if you're willing to receive prayer in your marriage, if you're willing to admit that you need a church to surround you like this, 
Um, I want you to go ahead and stand to your feet right now, if, that, if that's you. If you're married and you're willing to receive prayer, I want you to stand to your feet right now. If you want to go ahead and join me on stage, Brooke. Now, the rest of y'all that are sitting, I, I need you in this moment. I need you in this moment, okay? Um, I want every person who's standing, and like I said, if, you, if you've gone through a failed relationship and you just want prayer, you can feel free to stand. I don't want anyone in this room to be alone in this moment, though. And so if you're not standing, I want you to go to the couple that's standing that's closest to you, to the person who's standing that's closest to you, and I want you to do what the Bible says. We're just going to lay hands on each other. It's not weird. It's just a hand on a shoulder, a hand on a back. If you don't want to do that, you can just extend your arm and just show your symbolic support. But I want every couple around this room, if, if there's anyone who's alone, man, just come closer with somebody else. But go ahead and everyone, let's, let's show the couples around us that we're supporting each other. And we're just going to pray for each other. You can move about the room to do this. And I've asked Sherwin, who represents the long haul faithful marriage of our house, 56 years, to come and pray over marriages, mine included. So let's let Sherwin pray for us as a church family. this morning that you would bless them that you would encourage their hearts that they would know your forgiveness and your love in a fresh way you are the God of second chances and fresh starts I pray that they would take advantage of that Lord whether it's a second chance or a thousandth chance that they'd say yes to you Lord I'm going to start over again with you I'm going to trust you more this day. Lord, do in them what they cannot do. Change their hearts. Change my heart, Lord Jesus, where you know it needs to be changed. Thank you that you don't expect perfection from us. And we want to make progress this week in our relationship with one another, with our spouse. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for them this morning specifically that you would grow them in that area of forgiveness, forgiving their spouse quickly, not holding grudges, not letting uh, uh, bitterness grow in their hearts, but they would know just as you have forgiven them, for as you have forgiven me, that you want us to pass that on to our spouse. No matter how small the offense seems to be, perhaps as big to our spouse and that we'd have the courage to stand up and say I'm sorry I was wrong will you please forgive me and then receive forgiveness when it's necessary Lord Jesus when somebody apologizes to us Lord Jesus I thank you so much for Pat who has taught me so much about forgiveness thank you for our consistency in that Lord, these are your people. They belong to you. I pray that you would shine your 
light of love and grace in their hearts this day and give them your peace. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this Peak City message today. If you'd like more information on Peak City Church or if you'd like to give to the mission here in Colorado Springs, then check us out at peakcityco.com.